my daughter uh, for spring break went last year, I guess it was, went to uh, to France. And the guys that she was traveling with, they wanted to go to Normandy. And she was like, all right, what is that? It's a beach, it's a landing okay. and stuff. I showed showed her that 10-minute scene of Saving Private Ryan where, you know, on the big screen where it's just hell. And I think that it gave her just a full appreciation of that hallowed ground that she and, the, and her friends were walking on. And she came back having been to um, Utah, Omaha beaches, um, I think gold they had gone to. I don't know if they hit uh, Juno or Sword, but I mean, because that, that whole area stretches like, what, 50, 60 miles of coastline that was fortified. So I think, you know, here in the house, you know, we've had a lot of discussion of what that was, what it meant. And, uh, you know, when, when there is that call to war, you know, how we think you're all in. But when you start thinking about how over a period of time, you know, you send 200,000 men almost to land on a beach. I mean, it's just, the, the numbers are just staggering. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Ian Scotto here, at Ian Scotto on Twitter, if you want to follow me. We have a great show lined up for you. Third appearance by author extraordinaire J.T. Patton. If you're listening to this on the release date, it also just so happens to be June 6th, D-Day. And if you know J.T. Patton, you know he's a military buff and a historian of, of sorts. So we do get his thoughts on D-Day, which is interesting to hear. We get into a whole lot more. We get into how reading Penthouse got J.T. Patton into Stephen King novels, right? So that's pretty interesting. Before we uh, get into this episode, though, I have to tell you, if you're not getting a great night's sleep, you very well may be deficient in magnesium. Magnesium is essential a lot of you guys are not taking a magnesium supplement, and the difference between just going to Walmart and getting the magnesium and getting Ned's Magnesium Mellow Super Blend, it's a world of difference because Ned has trusted ingredients. They do third-party lab reports, and it works. I mean, I know from experience. So with over 700 five-star customer reviews, Ned's Mellow Magnesium is an instant hit. Nourish your entire body with Ned's proprietary super blend with three forms of chelated magnesium, GABA, L-theanine, and over 70 trace minerals. It propels memory, mood, brain function, stress response, nerve and muscle health, and of course, sleep. And once again, a lot of you are deficient in it. Actually, about 75% of Americans are deficient in it. So Ned's Mellow Magnesium is now available on Amazon but you'll get the best deal through us as a first-time customer when you go to helloned.com slash battleline or add the code battleline at checkout. That's H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash battleline, helloned.com, promo code battleline. With that, let's get right into my friend and author, J.T. Patton. City to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck 
conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Which is on. Mother I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. The Switch is on Battleline Podcast, and I am going to tell you something. Uh, it's funny, by the way, I was going to say JT. I, I always call you JT Patton, and I know it's not like your your legal name, but I'll always know you as JT Patton. I don't I don't know you as your you know your government name. It, you know, it's funny because I've even got friends in that I've known for years, and some in the writing community, and you know we're close personal friends, but they call me JT too. So. I don't know. It could be on my headstone at some point. <laughs> I think more people know me as JT than they do just even by my real name these days. Yeah, I've never not called you JT Patton. And uh, and also like the guys that I worked for, I know that you remember like when I was at softrep.com, like a lot of those guys didn't write under their real names. And I'll always know them as those names like uh, Kurt Schroeder. That's not his real name. But if I ran into him, I know him as Kurt Schroeder. Right. Right. Well, so, I've known Jack. Mur I've known Jack Murphy for years, and I think he still just calls me JT. <laughs> I think I think you're going to say that Jack Murphy's not his real name. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, but he'll even text me. He's like, hey, what's up, JT? <laughs> That's what I text you as. I always say JT. I don't know you as anything else. Right. But what I was going to say is, I I always would say I pride myself on being like a little bit prepared for interviews, and I will warn you right now, I am completely not prepared for this interview. I usually have notes in front of me with like your Twitter, your Instagram, the name of the book, all that stuff. And I'll usually, you know, have the book in advance and even get a chance to read through some of it. All that I have is what you told me. Uh, and the reason being, because I, like I said, 99% of the time I am prepared. I was just in Vegas for this identity management um, convention. Yeah. Which you probably didn't even know there was an identity management uh, convention if, if I had to guess. I actually uh, do because my, in the real life, I'm do, I'm running a cybersecurity practice. So yeah, I was aware. So did you know that this week was um, Identiverse in Las, Ve in Las Vegas? Las Vegas, Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah. You did, okay. Did, yeah. did you happen to be there or something? Imagine. No, like I, I wasn't there. there. We, we, we don't deal as much in the identity management side. And so we didn't send a team down there, but uh, we were at, just at uh, RSA rims. I think there's going to be a bunch of people over black hat that we're sending out to it. So. I know black hats a little bigger. I know that type yeah. of stuff with the hacking and all that, but yeah. So uh, for the, the audience might know this, I mean, outside of this now I've been, I, I told you I was working for Newsmax for four days and I was like, this is not for me. And I left. But prior to that, I met this guy, Adam, who has this company called Nidus here on Long Island in Long Beach. And we were working together and I ended up like working with him. I actually called him while I was working at Newsmax. And I was like, dude, this is not working out. Can I, can I get back to working with you? He's like, yeah, we were working on some cool stuff here. So we started this podcast called the Nidus Anarchy series that you guys can look up, which is N-Y-E-D-I-S. And we talk identity access management. So I went with him to that convention. I We got there on Tuesday night. I was there for the whole day on Wednesday, interviewing people about their products and that type of thing. Thursday, we were there for half the day. Then I had to immediately fly back to New York 
Um, I got home at maybe like 3 a.m. because I had to drive where he is on Long Beach to here in Port Washington. Um, so I wake up yesterday on Friday and this man does not stop. I mean, he really is like a machine. He was like, let's get over here. Let's check out this footage that we shot. Let's record some other stuff. So basically, I I passed out when I got home. My intention was to go to the gym. That did not happen. So I just like completely passed out. I woke up super late. I went in town to get something to eat just now, like, like a very late breakfast. And there was a, a crazy amount of traffic. So basically, long story short, I, I've got nothing, but hopefully we can make this an entertaining show. <laughs> Look, man, just two friends getting back together, you know? It's true, yeah. And then I know we'll have, like, plenty to talk about. I mean, the, before we actually get into the book, what I was going to say is this is going to air on June 6th. And I know that you are very much a history guy. Um, yeah. I mean, it's apparent in, in the work that you've written, although that's not what you're currently doing, which we'll get into. But you were telling me you visited a World War II museum recently and um, yeah, I think it'd be great to get into just the meaning behind D-Day because we always say like never forget, but uh, I think a lot of people just remember, even myself at times, just the very basics of, of what went down and, you know, it'd be great to hear what D-Day means to you. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really funny because I think um, lately it's, it's, I, you know, I would, I don't know that it's meant more or as much as it just rekindled some things. Um, I've got kids, you know, that are in college now, teens. And so um, I went, we were just down in, uh, in New Orleans and uh, doing some research and I brought my wife and my son there. Um, we went to the, um, the World War II museum. And as you know, it's, it's out in New Orleans because the landing craft, the Higgins boats uh, were created in, Louisiana. Um, and so, you know, that's, I guess the, the, the flat bottom boats are what, you know, brought it there. So my son was, you know, was really interested in what's going around. He's taking a look at stuff, but my, but I found, even though I've been there a couple of times, my wife and I were literally reading like each information bit, uh, you know, from one thing to another. And I just see my son, you know, his eyes are rolling in the back of his head. Um, because we didn't realize just how many aspects of it. I mean, you think about World War II, you think about, okay, you know, there's D-Day, but I, I think for whatever reason, a lot of people start thinking that it's from like 1941 after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, and they don't realize it was that much further. And how even when uh, the Germans started, um, you know, acquiring territories and advancing their, mo their movements, I mean, in the 1940s, there's like 90% of the American population that had just gotten over World War One that said, we're not doing this. You know, this was isolationist. They're like, we, we've got our own little island. We are just going to stick to this. No more killing our boys. And it wasn't until actually the Birmingham, uh, bombing of Pearl Harbor that that sentiment changed. So, you know, there for a while, I, and I, I don't know that I firmly believe it, but it'd be kind of a curious alternate history. If we had never been bombed, what would it have taken for the American sentiment to have gotten on board to get involved with such a life costly war? Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so, so it was really interesting to see that. I think the other thing that was, that's kind of come home close to us is my daughter uh, for spring break went last year, I guess it was went to, uh, to France and the guys that she was traveling with, they wanted to go to Normandy. And she was like, all right, what is that? It's a beach, it's a landing mm -hmm. and stuff. I showed, showed her that 10 minute scene of Saving Private Ryan. 
where, you know, on the big screen where it's just hell. And I think that it gave her just a full appreciation of that hallowed ground that she and the and her friends were walking on. And she came back having been to um, Utah, Omaha beaches. Um, I think gold they had gone to. I don't know if they hit uh, Juno or Sword, but I mean, because that, that whole area stretches like, what, 50, 60 miles of coastline that was fortified. So I think, you know, here in the house, you know, we've had a lot of discussion of what that was, what it meant. And, uh, you know, when, when there is that call to war, you know, how we think you're all in. But when you start thinking about how over a period of time, you know, you send 200,000 men almost to land on a beach. I mean, it's just the, the numbers are just staggering. Yeah, it really is. And, and I think people worry is, are these lessons going to be taught for the next generations? I mean, I, I've mentioned before on the show, like we had actually Vincent Speranzo, World War II survivor on the show recently, who's still fully intact. I mean, he he speaks like someone who's my age or your age. He's yeah. he's completely all there, to put it that way. Uh, and yeah, we're losing them. I and mean, there's, there's only going to be so many Holocaust survivors the next few years. We're losing them. We're losing World War II survivors. I think the last of like the Pearl Harbor survivors, I had the privilege of interviewing one of them um a while back and it's important that that your children and their children learn this stuff yeah i think um my dad had a cousin uh who was world war ii veteran fought he was a marine uh, fought in the islands and if you can imagine i mean you know i'm, I'm stereotypical and, and and pushing this down but saying you know a lot of asians at the time even were less than five foot ten fighting this guy was like six foot seven and he was hand-to-hand -hand combat um in the trenches in foxholes and um i remember when i was looking to join rotc uh, as is in college you know graduating high school and he was just really he never talked about war but i remember him sitting down with me one night and just trying to convince me so much not to look at the military as an option um, and based on his experiences, I mean, he was so impacted by that. I remember that hearing stories from my dad that when they delivered his, the purple hearts, he turned them away. Oh, wow. He's like, I, I want nothing to do with this anymore because he said, you know, you're giving me an award for something. He goes, I, we were just surviving. And, uh, so it's, I, I can't even imagine, uh, you know, what, what, what they were going through at the time. Yeah, there's definitely a, a difference, I think, in terms of the attitude of that generation of military and this generation of military. Part of it has to do with the voluntary aspect of it, of course. But there's no shortage of GWAT veterans who want to come on this show, for example, and tell their story. And a lot of Vietnam veterans, for whatever reason, for differences in the culture, they're usually not as open to telling it or they're, they're not going to tell as much in detail. And I think especially the World War II guys they got home and didn't talk about it. And there was definitely no such thing as going to therapy unless you had like a, unless, unless you were like clinically insane or something, it's just not what, what people did at the time. So I think the idea of like opening up and writing a book, it's almost foreign to them. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. I was, I was thinking, um, I, I was thinking back even, you know, as I mentioned, the ROTC, I remember right before you know, I was ready to sign contract and, um, this guy, Sergeant Major Jones, part of the cadre, you know, and he and I were talking about it and he was, you know, we were talking about the looming Gulf Wars and he was like, you know, he goes, we, we train 
to fight in jungles after Vietnam, he's like, people are going out to the desert. And he says, there's no tree to hide behind in the mm. desert. Yeah. And I can just imagine what these guys in World War II were thinking when, as they're coming across in these boats, you know, choppy seas, you know, how are we going to do it? And they just see these massive berms and saying, you know, these guys are just going to be cutting us down, uh, but we're supposed to take the hill. How, how exactly is that going to be done? Because ultimately, how could any of them ever thought to have even trained like they were going to have to fight? Um, it's and in really what amounted to just a massive surge of attrition uh, to just see who can break through those lines at, at human cost. Uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Do you, do you think there is truth to that greatest generation saying? Uh, because, I mean, I've met plenty of heroic guys from my generation, from your generation who have served. I think like the difference, of course, is once again, the voluntary aspect. These guys were just called to serve. Their number was called and they had to go out there and do what their country told them to do. Um, so, yeah. Do, do you think that, that that is a true statement or is it something that we blow out of proportion as the years go on and we say this is the greatest generation? You know, I, I, I can't comment really on that. I mean, I just, I think about, you know, would it be different if they knew as much as we know now at our ages, um, what they could be getting into? Because really a lot of the time, I mean, yeah, sure. You've got some you know, radio. Um, I don't even know when television exactly was invented, but you certainly didn't have internet um, no. <laughs> to, to really make you aware. So you just hear these stories that are just go, being passed from individuals to individuals are crowding around the radio. So I think that sometimes in theory, when you think about liberating, there may have been different romanticism um, and, and a call of duty, that patriotism, um, you know, just it's so many people, I think at the time also, you know, churchgoers, I mean, you're getting it from the pulpit. Um, there was actually, I think, you know, I mean, it was it was conscious. Um, and I saw this in the museum, an information campaign in the US to garner more support. So they collected it. And I know people obviously stepped up. But, um, you know, I, I'd like to think that while they, it's the greatest generation, I think that over time, um, even afterwards in, in Korea, Vietnam, I mean, you're talking about the same type of soldiers and men who are just stepping up and volunteering to serve and just doing what they're asked. So I think that we've got a hell of a lot of great generations. And, uh, you know, it's it, I wouldn't say that we should just necessarily be anointing only one group of people as one yeah. uh, that's now, um, you know, passing the torch, uh, because I think that a lot of people have stepped up along the way. And um, and so we don't want to think of it as, boy, all hope is just lost because those folks just died. Um, there's yeah. been a lot of people carrying the mantle since then. No, I, I fully agree with that. I, I think sometimes people are too cynical and just this whole generation sucks. And, and every generation is going to think like the generation before them is better. Of course, I, I get that. Um, but yeah, I, I do worry about it. And, and you kind of alluded to it before, I think, with like the amount of information is that I don't think there's there's any cause right now that could happen, even if it were to be 9-11 20 years later, if we were to experience that same type of uh, an event that the whole country could get behind. I, I really do think the country is at a point where it's never been. I mean, of course, you could say the Civil War, we were more divided, but at least in my in 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 my own life, I've never seen the country more divided. And I think if something were to happen, we would still split among party lines for everything. 
Yeah, it could be. I mean, I would hate to, to, to have such a catalyst that would bring uh, such another grouping together like 9-11. I mean, I still remember, you know, the, the ribbons around trees and it seemed like every flag on houses was waving. Uh, didn't matter what, you know, your, the, your political belief was. It just was something that people were uniting behind for, you know, months there. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I again, I, I think to your sentiment too, you'd hate for something that was so cataclysmic that that brings people together versus just a rationale of, hey, this is, we, you know, we are in this together. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting, uh, you know, just connected with the events of World War II and, and uh, just wars past, uh, I was going to say how people's uh, feelings of war have changed, which you said before, with all of these wars, with the, the cost of uh, blood and treasure and all that. I remember I got to meet, it, it, this was interesting, when I was at SiriusXM, the son of a guy who allegedly raised the flag at Iwo Jima. It was found out years later that he's not the guy in the icon iconic photo who raised the flag at Iwo Jima, but he was involved. But it's not like it was a fake. He was involved in a raising of the flag at Iwo Jima. There were apparently multiple of them, but it wasn't the iconic one, and that was found out years okay. later. But this guy was uh, very, like, vehemently anti-war. And the person I was working, I was working on Senator Bradley's show. It wasn't Senator Bradley interviewing him. It was the executive producer of the show that we worked on. And she was like, you know, talking about the heroicism and the romanticism of what he did. And he was like, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything um, amazing about it. He's just like, I, I think it's so tragic that we are involved in war. So, yeah, there's always going to be a lot of different feelings about our involvement in, in these foreign conflicts, even something like World War II, as you said before. And, and it is interesting for you to mention that at the time, the country, it took time to be fully behind us getting involved. Yeah, I, I, I think about, you know, the reasons and rationale that we have gotten into wars. And it, it I, I'm no major historian, so I'm sure that some of my thinking is flawed, but it seemed as though World War II was pretty cut and dry as to why you would need to have some involvement. Um, some of the other ones, maybe a little bit more politically driven. And so I think that, you know, with... And even some may argue with after 9-11, you know, those who went to Afghanistan may have been fighting the correct targeted war versus another one that could have been, you know, maybe a little bit less justified. Um, so I think that as we, you know, bring the next generations of war fighters up, I know that I struggle and would struggle if any of my children were saying that they wanted to go into the military and fight for certain because they believed in a certain war or cause. Because I, having been in the intelligence community and working across various missions and things like that, um, I have seen from a different lens where some decision makers may not have necessarily had the best interests in mind or maybe had the most information that was accurate or sought to find that um, where they would maybe push intel aside for hunches um, so i think that i have some concern for some of the leadership experiences that i had and wanting to put my kids lives on the line for what they may believe in but what may not you know have the right or same end state um, or may not have the proper support or or focus of where efforts are going. You know, I mean, you think about first, second, third order effects. 
if we take this hill, what is that going to achieve? Sometimes it's just simply a tactical move of we want to do it, but at the cost of certain lives, was it worth it? You know, yeah. could there have been another thing? And so I, I, I know I struggle with that. And I think that's probably where some other folks are, you know, doing some thinking too of like, do I really want to do that? And, uh, you know, it's, it's something to think about. And it's certainly something I'm sure that our military leadership is thinking about too, especially as some of their, uh, you know, they find it harder and harder to attract talent and to retain talent. Yeah. I mean, I'm at least old enough to remember when we went into Afghanistan and pretty much the whole country was behind that war. Then when we went into Iraq, a little bit more pushback. What does this have to do with 9-11? None of the perpetrators are from Iraq. Well, but if you fast forward to now, and no matter what you know anyone in the audience's feelings are about what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, it's safe to say that there is definitely not unity behind the United States being involved in what's going on in Ukraine. There is a ton of... And if we were to go into a full-fledged war over what's being done there, I think a ton of Americans, maybe even a majority of Americans would say, why is this worth American lives? Why are we there? Um, I think there's just such a distrust in, in what people would call the military industrial complex. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. I, I think, you know, we've come back a little bit to that whole isolationist mentality. I think on the other side, you know, you think, well, what what are our political, our economic interests in those regions? Why you wouldn't say, hey, those their own neighbors should do it. Um, yeah, I think that there's a lot of agendas on there versus that more black and white, hey, this is something that from a, just the right thing to do uh, would be to get involved because I think you find that there are so many skirmishes across the world that may have more heartfelt justification to get involved, but the outcome may not be as advantageous um, politically, economically, what have you. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but I, yes, I do want to get into your book. So the interesting thing, I mean, if people tuned into our last episode, which was six months ago, and we spoke about your last book, you've kind of exited, at least for now, the black ops type thrillers that you were writing for various reasons. And you are now doing something that's definitely a little bit different and and this will be the next inst not next installment but next book that you're writing um of that type of uh uh genre but i know that this is like going to be the first book right in an installment of other books i believe yeah so when we talked i think i had just finished uh whispers of a gypsy which yes ironically it was out, goes it was out yeah and and ironically that takes from the history of world war ii and the holocaust and persecution of uh the romani uh gypsies um, and, and how they were making this, this super soldier, you know, yada, yada, that ended up being kind of an avenger of, um, of the wrongs and was still, you know, hunting down uh, old Nazis. Um, but that was like a blend of that, you know, military side still had a little bit of intel to it. And, and then, um, you know, some of the, uh, you know, the, the traditional thriller aspects of it. Um, I I, I really enjoyed writing that book. I found a certain sense of freedom um, in, you know, not having to re-research too much more about, you know, I, I'm pretty much out of touch from military and intel community now. So, so much has changed that just like anybody else, I'd, I'd really have to just research it like anybody else would. Uh, the difference though is I'm still under obligations 
so that I can't just put something out without having it reviewed. And as we've shared on the, the show before, it can take six months, it could take three months, it could take a year. Sometimes I have to make the adjustments and then send those back. So it's really hard to fit with a publishing schedule. And uh, with that Task Force Orange series, um, that, that ruffled some feathers. So I think they were drawing it out a little bit longer. And as I mentioned before, you know, they're overtly discouraged uh, from writing that too. So I've been kind of letting that air clear. Um, but as I was doing it, um, you know, I've just found that I just enjoy writing. I enjoy the storytelling. And I always like a good mystery. I always like some good crime. Um, so the my wife, uh, and I and as I, my son, as I mentioned, we were in New Orleans and we just had a really interesting experience with some of the legends, um, whether it's about the serial killers, whether it's about the vampires, ghosts, werewolves, what have you. And that seems to gravitate a little bit more towards my wife's interests and preferences for reading. Um, my son was a little bit more interested in that, too. And so I'm like, you know, we heard the legend of these Carter brothers um, who in the 1920s or 30s had um, up in the top of this apartment, uh, evidently um, kidnapped a bunch of people and tied them to chairs and uh, someone had escaped. And they found that when the cops came in there to raid the place, they found out that uh, these two brothers had been uh, letting, you know, or cutting these people's wrists and taking their blood. Um, and then there was stacks of bodies in another room. Um, they ended up supposedly hanging these people uh, or these two brothers, and then they buried them. And, uh, and, and in New Orleans, you've got these vaults where they turn over about every uh, year and a day uh, because the heat comes down and literally just bakes the bodies. And then they, you know, kind of push the, the bones to the end and put somebody else in. So supposedly legend goes, they pushed it in or they opened the, the, the vault up and uh, the brothers were gone. So I, I thought that was, would be kind of a fun story to mix together. But as we're doing it, I learned of this thing called the Axemen murders that was happening at the time also. So putting together the time that that was happening and what was going on just seemed like a fun little thing. And I think I may have actually uncovered what could have happened in those Axemen murders hmm. um, that had happened in New Orleans that, that remained unsolved. Oh, wow. So are you thinking of maybe writing something a little bit more nonfiction and and putting that out there that'd be pretty cool i i think that i put in enough in this fictionalized book um i mean i don't want to geek out too much on the whole thing but it, but it's kind of interesting because at the time you had these two different turfs you had the irish uh area of new orleans and then you had another area of italians that were coming in and the irish were getting a little bit squeezed and, you, and the Irish then had plenty of gangs also, some, some uh, nonviolent crime. But around them, their, the French market was being, uh, was, was diminishing because of all of these Italian grocers that were coming in. And so they started bringing up more things towards the, the west end of the city. Um, there was another area in this Italian area, especially this, this area called the Swamp. That's where they had like a lot of taverns, clubs, prostitution. That area was also moving up into another area called Storyville. So if you're an Italian or an Irish guy, uh, especially if you're involved with some crime, you might be pretty pissed off that that was happening. So right about that time, these murders started happening where they were killing these Italian grocers. Every time somebody would be murdered, they usually left behind the axe. And 
I don't think that at the time there were too many like Home Depot's Harbor Freights. So, <laughs> you know, you can't afford to be just laying around a bunch of axes and ordering a box from Amazon or something like this. So <laughs> this the, the question was whether or not there were actually multiple people involved. And so my hypothesis was if there was a bit of a grudge against them and they wanted to send warnings or actually you know, knock out enough of, of those people that you might be able to shift the tides in what was happening economically for them at the time of the Great Depression, um, I believe that they could have had targeted killings, um, you know, where you hire a guy, you got an ax, go get these people. A lot of people actually survived it. So the MO was very different. Um, and, and I think as they did it, one of the reasons they couldn't find the killers, in some cases they had some suspects, but they couldn't link it to the other killing I, I believe that there may have been multiple people involved. And so in this case, I also tied it in where with New Orleans, you've got these vampires that are coming about too. If you're chopping people's, uh, you know, heads off or chopping them in the neck, you know, what, when I get, you know, a little, little uh, snack while you're there. So <laughs> I, I use that as some of those guys, you know, may have been vampires also, but, uh, but I think that there's some real validity to what if, what could have happened socioeconomically in that territory that may have actually been the root of why those killings were happening. That's wild that you've uncovered uh, like some interesting stuff about it though, because someone with your intelligence background going into a story like this, you, you may be the first person to look into this who has the background that you do. And it's also because so many people investigate things like the JFK assassination, like how many people are looking into this uh, I think you might have something here beyond just a fiction book. I I like to think so. At the very least, I know that I can also be bullshitting everybody enough <laughs> with a straight enough face where it looks like it works. But now it should be fun. I and I think the other part that was fun, and again, it's not anything uh, military thriller in these stories, but for these vampires, you know, if you've got a bunch of guys that have to like cut the wrists of people to suck their blood doesn't seem like they're really vampires so i i turned the story where what if there was a different vampire in the city and these guys were compelled and doing all these acts so what i actually created in this book was each section shows how these guys were being manipulated by a vampire to do their bidding and it shows more of like a mental abuse psychological abuse so every chapter is dedicated to a different phase of what you do to break down a human emotionally to gain control of them. And uh, so that was kind of fun, too, because, you know, if you take from the interrogation, if you take from um, uh, any type of, you know, um, abuse or stuff like that, you know, that could all be woven in. So I, I pulled out some old manuals and, and stuff and uh, and kind of applied it to that. So I think it's kind of fun, too. So if there is somebody that has got an intel background, counterintelligence, somebody's done interrogation or elicitation uh, or even, you know, psyops and seeing how you manipulate somebody to break down their core of who they are into something else that you're wanting to shape them as for your own benefit. Um, I think people, you know, be kind of like, aha, I know what that, I know what's going on there. <laughs> uh, and, and I hope, you know, if there's even some like younger readers, um, I was thinking about this with my kids too, the, my daughters is, you know, I think sometimes in relationships, you also don't recognize psychological or, or emotional mental abuse. And, and I, so I thought that as many, you know, teen or young adult uh, women uh, might be reading something like this and not quite catching the abuse that they're at the hands of. 
um, and seeing some of these patterns. I thought that's a pretty in your face way to create a vignette of something that they may see in their life also and you know get help or get themselves out or just recognize that it's not their fault. So I hope that has a couple different outcomes. Hey, hope you're enjoying this interview so far with JT Patton. If you like uh, his banter with me, you got to pick up his books, whether it's uh, pre-ordering the new book coming out or going back to the Safe Havens uh, thriller series and revisiting all that stuff if you're into the Black Ops novels, because he's currently not doing those, which we get into, but you could still buy them. Um, because as you'll hear, quite honestly, it's a pain in the ass to go through the review process of uh, an OPSEC and all that of writing those types of books, and, and JT's the best at it because he's been there and done that. Um, hey, if any of you guys are in the market for ammo, we have so many listeners who are shooting with other stuff, and they've made the conversion to Fort Scott Munitions, not only because it's the best, but they know that if they're in a home invasion situation, if it's a life or death situation, they know they can trust Fort Scott Munitions to get the job done. They also, even if you're not shooting or, or aren't buying ammo, they have great gear on the site, great t-shirts and that type of stuff. You'll get a great deal through us. So Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition. It's designed to tumble upon impact and soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with every pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses everywhere, but Go to the website, do it through us because you'll get a great deal. It's fsm.com and use that promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off your order. Only available to listeners of the BATTLELINE podcast. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, BATTLELINE Tactical, and the BATTLELINE podcast. And you're supporting us when you shop through there. So fsm.com, promo code BATTLELINE. And hey, I should throw out to you guys, um, and I want to make sure I'm getting the, the address right here on this. Yeah. If you want to order these exclusive pins that we have battlelinepodcast.etsy.com. That's the Etsy store. We have exclusive pins on there. We'll hopefully have some other new merch coming on there soon. Um, but that's what we have right now. And they're great. People love them. I love them. Have them on my backpack. So battlelinepodcast.etsy.com. We still have pins available. So get them. After these sell out, we're not doing any more. Um, so check it out. It is interesting when you talk about the adjustment to writing these, or the, you don't really have to adjust to writing these types of books in, in comparison to what you were writing before. I mean, with what you were writing before, I know that there was a big fan base for it. And there's probably of that aspect of is there is is it worth the reward at the end of the day? Because you know, truthfully, and you've expressed this on the show, you're not at the level of Brad Thor where you're yeah. number one New York Times bestseller and, and get to say like, all right, I have to put all this work into this, but here's my reward at the end of the day. And Brad Thor, this is all he does is write these books. I know that you do other stuff. And yet to have to wait for this period to actually release a book and to go through all this trouble, um, yeah, it's probably just 
it's, it's hard to do what you do. So to say easier, but I mean, it's, it's probably you could relax a little bit more knowing you can just write what you want, put it out on your own accord, self-publish, as opposed to having to go through all these obstacles just to put out the book that you want to put out. And you're not a guy who's going to put out top secret information. It's not what you do, but yeah, it, it's something that I think needs to change because people love to read these black ops types books, types of books. And they're not going to be around anymore if if they make, you know, writers who are not of that top tier like Brad Thor have to go to a six month waiting period just to release what they want to put out. Yeah. And, and I, I think we've maybe talked about this on the show, too, um, yeah. and even related it to Brad Thor, where, you know, if you take someone like Brad Thor and you take somebody else who's well, let's take Brad Taylor, um, who who is in a, a, a tier one counter terror uh, uh, unit. Um the bottom line is you still have to be able to tell a story. Now, both guys can tell stories. Brad may have to, you know, make some phone calls or make some educated guesses. Brad, you know, uh, yeah, both are both uh, Brad. <laughs> but, but Taylor, you know, may have to, you know, ha- may know it, but he may have to work a little bit harder on the writing aspect of it. And so as I found was, you know, I had some of the cool stories at the time um, and some, some, you know, inside baseball, but, as that knowledge faded, as times changed and, and TTPs changed and tradecraft, all of a sudden I didn't have it. And then I had to finalize, you know, or finally realize that I, I needed to learn how to write um, because it wasn't like I was just exposing secrets and saying, hey, this is, I, you know, I'm that inside guy and you should read my stuff. I just had to become a better writer. And so I think that's also what's been kind of cool about these books uh, shifting to another genre is taking what I've learned in the thriller side, bringing it to horror where I'm not looking to even challenge a guy like Stephen King, who's got a 700 page book that's going to send sell millions of copies. But there are also going to be some readers that are like, I don't want to pick up a 700 page book. Yeah, yeah. But I would read a 200 page book that was written by a thriller author who can maybe make these movie or these uh, books a little bit more cinematic, a little faster paced. And so I'm having fun with that and maybe exploring even where I might fit into this area um, a little better. And some folks had said, well, you know, you've, you're completely switching from military thrillers to horror. How hard is that? It's not been hard for me either from the standpoint that one of the reasons I think I also didn't receive as much support from um, publishers was my books were very, very dark. And they wanted to have a little bit more of that white, uh, that uh, that man in the white hat uh, against the the you know the the guy in the dark hat, you know the villain. Um, and because mine were so gray, and a little bit more noir in how I was telling the story with kind of cliffhangers and stuff, didn't quite finish, didn't have a clean ending. Um, I know that was some of the feedback that I had gotten too. And if I would just make it a little bit more, I mean, literally, there was a guy that said, "Here's what I want you to do. I want the guy in a white hat with a horse." to ride it kill an arab run into the sun right into the sunset next day do it again and uh you know i i didn't find that that was going to uh satiate my interest in writing and the stories that i wanted to tell yeah so- i mean to you is that is that selling out a bit i mean you know because you know it's interesting the last podcast that we had on that you may have seen was Corey taylor from slipknot which may have been one of the probably the biggest guests we've ever had on i mean because we had alex jones on before so that i mean that's a big everybody knows alex jones but i think everybody knows Corey taylor from slipknot but 
the thing is that it was interesting to me about their career and, and why I'm comparing this is because he spoke about it during the interview and it's apparent if you're listening to their music, they never wrote a song that was like, this is going to get radio play. This is going to be a hit. like most of their songs don't even have clean vocals. So I even said to him, I was like, it's almost a glitch in the matrix that Slipknot became this massive band because they've had number one billboard albums, which is crazy. When you think of a number one billboard album, you think of like Mariah Carey and Britney Spears and Michael Jackson and something that's palatable to a whole, you know, massive audience of people. You don't think of, of like growling vocals and heavy guitars and all that. Um, and I think that Corey Taylor and the band were unwilling to compromise in that sense to become huge. And somehow they did in the process. And I guess, is it maybe the same for you? You're like, I, this is what I like to write. And to, to me to write the same thing that maybe a Jack or Brad Thor is writing and just with my name, it, it's kind of selling out my own integrity. Yeah, I, I in that instance of my publisher, my editor, that would have advanced me a little bit more in that space. Now, would I say sour grapes, you know, boy, if I would have just changed what I was doing, I would be just as popular as them. <laughs> Those guys kick ass and yeah. they have a huge reader base and stuff. So I, I could have changed it and maybe never anything would have happened. Um, and, and maybe that was even one of my fears is now, I, well, actually it, it was a reality because they did say for the third book in one of the series, um, if you change this up, then, you know, we'll give you that fourth, fifth and sixth book. And I look at it like, yeah, I don't think so. And so that's when I started going, you know, looking at the micro presses instead, and you still put something out and get it edited and get some good content out there and just go a little bit more direct to reader. Um, so I think with what I'm doing now, um, I, I think, you know, yes, after putting the first one out, Whispers of a Gypsy, I mean, that didn't, you're not seeing that on New York Times, um, and that's not all over Broadway or anything like that, you know, in, in, in the headlines and stuff. Um, and I'm not on any, you know, radios and talk shows, uh, aside from, you know, these types of things, you sure. know, where it's not like it's not, you know, ABC or Good Morning America. So, but I, so I did look and think, all right, if I am new to this era or to this arena, do I need to do something a little bit more traditional? And so I think a little bit of a compromise was doing that vampire one that I did. Um, I am doing another like Bayou Werewolf one. Um, it's part of this like kind of New Orleans type theme. These are novellas, so I can crank them out quick, still put out good quality stuff. Um, and then I'm hoping I may be able to, I mean, if look, it's you sell if you're good. And if, if I can garner enough interest, then I may be able to have a little bit more flexibility to what else I want to write. So I've got this one that I, uh, that I've been starting, uh, it's called Awaken the Piper. And, you know, when I look out there at manuscript wish lists, what people, what agents and publishers want in horror right now, it could be, oh, I want spores. I want, you know, a, a, a demon in space that, uh, you know, hmm. finds a puppy or something like Jason that. I mean, really, Remember yeah, that kind of like There's kind of some weird stuff that they're looking at. And, and I know that they're also looking for certain voices right now to, you know, diversify. But I can't change who I am and what I am. So I see what they're wanting and asking. So I'm hoping I get enough people out there so that I can do this reawakening of a Pied Piper that's like a Sicario and bring them into, you know, these cornfields and stuff and, and really do some mayhem where most people would kind of be like, yeah, I'm not, I'm not uh, going to publish that. 
um, yeah. from a, a big box. But if I've got enough success for it, you know, maybe at least somebody will like that's kind of a different story. So you take, OK, there's a Stephen King, but then you've also got a guy like Jack Ketchum, who was um, equally prolific, didn't have that household name ring, but he is a brutal writer. And I de definitely see myself more aligned towards someone like him than like a king. And there are people out there that'll read that. So we'll see where it goes. You know, I think it'll be coming up on then after I finish these two and the next, that'll be about 10 books. Wow. Um, so, you know, I'm getting a little bit better at the writing and, and hopefully I think it's, you know, it's showing in some of the reviews. Absolutely. I mean, you know what you're doing after, after 10 books, <laughs> but I know that you're, you're humble about it, but uh, yeah. Have you, I was wondering, have you spoken to anyone or, or been more active in like the horror community or that type of thing? Because I know from your background, your friends and colleagues are in the intelligence community and the military community. Um, I just think like with my own history, the first podcast, well, first radio show wasn't pod, there weren't podcasts then that I ever worked on was Fangoria Radio on Sirius XM. And everybody knows Fangoria Magazine. It's like iconic horror magazine. And then there's these other online horror publications like Rue Morgue that do that type of thing. Have you, have you uh, reached out to any of them? Because what you're doing now mm, seems completely in that wheelhouse. Yeah, I'm trying. Um, so again, I think just like when I entered writing military thrillers, I had this kind of like this ego thing of like, when I plop down, people are just going to come to me. Um, <laughs> and it took, you know, some years before I got a chance to get to know guys like Brad Taylor, uh, Brad Thor and, and Mark Graney and, and many of these other successful writers where if I put out a book, I could say, dude, you mind reading it, giving me a blurb, I could get it. Going over to horror, I'm thinking, dude, a little bit of a swagger. I've got some some books out. I should be able to say, hey, I'm here, you know, check me out. Look what I'm going to do. And like anything else, there's a, there's a click of people that that have some good successes. And and then the, and the amount of independent people who are putting stuff out through there in these small presses, there's a massive volume that's just waiting to get into the hands of readers. So a lot of these places are pretty filled up and booked for like a year, year and a half. Now that fits a publisher's timeline. So it's really not too bad, but somebody like me who's looking to crank them out a little bit faster, I'm reaching out to some of these authors and asking if I can get a blurb, get a read or some type of support. They're like, uh, yeah, we'll get to it. Yeah. But I never hear from them. <laughs> so, so I think that's also why I'm trying to crank out a little bit more product and content now so I can make a bit of a name for myself get some validation. Hopefully it won't suck. Um, because then, you know, then they're, they're justified in, in not, you know, doing it. But if I can get a little bit of that validation out there, um, maybe that'll pave the way a little bit different. But in the meantime, I am part of this horror writers association. I do some mentorship. They've, I, for a number of years, they've got an award called the Bram Stoker award. Um, I've been a, um, uh, a jury, uh, or juror, you know, kind of like a, panels you read like you know almost 100 books a year uh, and then you kind of vote on them at the end of the year and wow. you put in your input so i've been doing things like that to read a ton understand it understand the business kind of get my name out there but yeah it's still like anything else um you, you have to know somebody um you have to be seen and it's got to be valuable to them too i mean if you had you know me on this show you know you're hoping that there's going to be somebody that's going to listen to it um, if you had me on the show, maybe 10 years ago, 
and we're talking about books people that I've never even heard of this guy. Well, actually, probably true today. But uh, <laughs> but no, still, people have seen me on the team house. And then we have like crossover and, and what we did with soft rep before. Right. So, yeah. But but bottom line is you're not going to take just an uh, something that nobody has heard of. And put him sure, on the show yeah. and say, "Hey, this is like this dude. He's a good guy. He's and, our friend." And you know, it all, yeah, it also has to do with who like your friends are and who your colleagues are and what your resume is. I mean, if different. I started a whole new podcast in a completely different genre, it would be harder because of the fact that for ten years I've met guys in the special operations military community, and like, there's a lot of guys who I'm friendly with, and and a lot of shows that I've done stuff with. So. Yeah, it's it's hard to just make those connections within a year or two that you've built up over, you know, a decade plus. Actually, when I was at, just at Identiverse, I was hanging out with Ted Balfour, the CEO of Nidus, the company that I work for, and everywhere I went, Ted, how's everything going? And, and it was like, oh, this is a guy I worked on a project with 20 years ago. This is a guy I worked on a project with five years ago. And and that just happens organically. I mean, with this show, we're we're not a Joe Rogan level show, but we do have a good amount of listeners so that when I go on Instagram, I get a ton of messages of you got to get this guy on. Can I come on the show? This is my background. And truthfully, it's like, we only do the show once a week. There's only four episodes a month. You know, there's only so many people we could have on. And of course I'm going to gravitate towards people that I know and I'm friendly with over someone I've never heard of. Um, I mean, you know, and we eventually get to people, but yeah, I mean, like, for example, you know the Navy SEAL Drago, right? Yeah, I not yeah. personally, but I know who people know yeah. of him, right? And, and I've met, met him, and when I saw that he's coming out with a book, it's like, we got to get this guy on, because this is his background, this is his, his history, he's legendary in the community, every SEAL talks about him, and has some type of story with Drago, as opposed to someone who's hitting me up on Instagram that I've just never heard of before. This is just the way it works in any business, of course. Yeah, and I, I think that there's the other thing that's that is I, I use that works against myself, which is, look, I've been writing military thrillers for a long time. And if you look up my, you know, true name or even my, my, uh, the pen name, it's going to talk about intelligence, mission work, and, you know, yada, yada. That's really different from what a lot of writers in horror are. So, I mean, I don't want to say, but if you take like a real conservative type of a profile of this one writer. I mean, I'm still writing in in ballistic tactical magazine, writing articles, doing gun reviews and stuff like that. And um, that's out there. Now you take that same person, you put them into a genre where there's a little bit more socially conscious, environmentally conscious, a little bit more liberal type of a, of a, of a profile of the writer. Which, by and the way, like, it's why, funny why when you think a about shooter it. Right? In there? What's that? But I was just gonna say, it's funny when you think about it. Like, I'm, why is a horror writer more left wing? It doesn't even, it, it, it's hard to even comprehend, but it, you're correct. It is. And so there's, I mean, it's like I looked at even some of my profiles that I had on my book. I mean, I had, okay, well, there's this one guy looks a little bit more, you know, tactical on this thing and then the other one i i literally put like more like coffee shop you know with the beard and stuff i mean sure as hell don't have a blackwater hat or a springfield you know ar uh, on the shirt um but you know you have to think about some of those things to reach out to who your audience is because you don't want to be so polarizing you need either way yeah and i think that's that's one of the things where yes i can be straddling the fence but man i got my legs stretched in two different camps yeah um yeah. and so trying to be authentic to myself really kind of right in the middle 
um, and, and catering to both groups that at any particular time can be at any one of those extremes, you know, maybe that is sometimes where I just am on the fence and that's why it doesn't also, you know, resonate, um, to a wider audience. Yeah. When I, when I worked at Fangoria, actually, so the two hosts of Fangoria Radio were Debbie Rashan, who's actually the voice of Battleline Podcast you hear at the beginning. That's her yeah. voice. So, um, you know, Debbie is, and uh, this is what they call it, like B-movie. She's a B-movie mm -hmm. horror actress. She's in those trauma movies and that type of thing. She's got hundreds of movies under her belt. And then the other host was Dee Snyder, and everybody knows Dee Snyder from Twisted right. Sister. And the interesting thing of having him on the show was that he's very much a mainstream horror fan. And a lot of the people in the audience were like, this guy doesn't know anything. And But he brought that appeal of like, I, I watch Jason and the Halloween movies and I don't really care about these B-level movies. It's not my world. And I actually think having the two together made things work. So yeah, sometimes you need to have people from all different backgrounds. I, I was going to say, I should probably get you in touch at some point with like Tony Timpone, who was the editor-in-chief of Fangoria. I know he's not anymore, but still a horror writer or Debbie Rashan because yeah, yeah, I mean, it would be cool to make those connections and, and get this book out to people who don't know you from your military background, but, but who your, your latest book is going to completely appeal to because that's their world is, is the horror world. And, and there's probably people in, of course, there's people in the military worlds and the, and the military thriller world who also read horror fiction. So that's right. And there's really in the writing, there is no difference between whether I take an Emerson and I'm jabbing some guy in the jugular or whether I'm taking a paring knife and doing the same thing to somebody. <laughs> so <laughs> it's there. Yeah, yeah. And when did you get into horror, uh, like just as a reader, by the way? Is that something you've always been into? So, yeah, now I'll tell you, I mean, if we've got time, I'm going to tell you really kind of a funny story. That Go for it, yeah. So, okay. So as a kid... And, you know, like probably 12, 13 years old. I mean, either way, I'm riding bikes to my friend's house. I'm not driving or anything. One of my good friends, uh, we used to love horror movies. So, we, you know, you usually go over, have a sleepover. You watch Son of Svengoolie, the monster movies. You know, you get a tombstone pizza. Awesome. <laughs> he also had this amazing stack of porn. <laughs> and he had his dad and his grandpa would give him playboys, penthouses, hustler, what have you. So, you know, young boys, we are going through everything also. And, you know, thumbing through those, you know, behind closed doors. And, you know, you have like three or four guys over and you're all going through it. So one night I'm over there, I'm thumbing through this, this penthouse. And I come to this article by Stephen King. I had a really interesting picture on on it so i'm like i'm starting by to the read way it's this. like a, of course jt Patton is the guy reading this for the articles that's right so i'm like so i mean literally i was like yeah read the articles <laughs> i started reading the article well these guys wanted the magazine i had i'm like i'm not done reading the article so what do i do <laughs> i mean i now i'm thinking i took the art the, the magazine into the bathroom you know across the hall and this, I'm this literally doesn't, this doesn't I'm, sound good. <laughs> I'm reading this article. It's like I finish up this interview with Stephen King. I walk out of the bathroom and there his mom is. And she's like, Scott, uh, if you guys are doing something in the room, that's one thing is I don't want you coming into the bathroom. And I'm like stuttering, stammering. And I'm like, really, I was reading this article on Stephen King. And she's like, Do you like Stephen King? I'm like, I don't know. She's like, come here. So we go into the family room 
And she shows me, I think it was Christine, Cujo, some of the first books by Stephen King. And she's like, do you want to borrow any of these? Her husband walks in. We're here. And so picture the scene, you know, back in the 80s. I'm sitting there on a couch with this lady with a penthouse right in front of us, just <laughs> hanging out. And she's like, and he's like, what the hell's going on here? He's like, we're both just reading the article. <laughs> so I started getting into Stephen King and um, I was a reluctant reader at the time. Um, so I guess, yeah, if you wanted something to read, put it in a penthouse or a Playboy for me, um, comic books. But I started then reading a lot. Of, almost everything was just Stephen King. And uh, I still watch the monster movies and stuff like that. And then gradually I expanded into other authors. But so when I thought about, all right, what am I going to write next out of the military thrillers? Um, it was just kind of natural. Where I'm thinking the books that I read are often horror books anyway. And the movies that I watch are horror. Anyway. Why wouldn't I try doing something like this? And so I, I feel like it's kind of a natural thing, something that I've always really enjoyed and, uh, you know, kind of cut my teeth on earlier. Uh, yeah, I'll be honest. I've never been, by the way, that's a hilarious story, but I've never read a, uh, a Stephen King book. I'm, I'm just, and I've, I've seen it of course, but yeah. I'm wondering, does he still have it as a writer? Be, is he, and is he still putting out material? Cause I actually yeah. don't know. Yeah. Is, yeah. Is good. Cause here's the thing that I, that's, that I'm curious about just from following him on Twitter and stuff and seeing the stuff that he gets into. It's sort of unfortunate because I feel like he's polarized himself with his politics. He's almost like, uh, and we've had him on the show, but it's almost like Ted Nugent. You know, unless you identify with his politics, you're not going to really appreciate how great of a guitar player he is because he's become more known as this polarizing right-wing figure. Stephen King, the opposite on Twitter. He's become this polarizing left-wing figure that I think a lot of people don't even know like what he's up to anymore or if he's still putting out books. Yeah, and, and I think, again, there, too, goes where some of the fan base is, because you may find some that may have that support some of those political views, because, as you'll see, hundreds of thousands of likes, you know, on that. And uh, I, I, I find myself, again, kind of in the middle there. I don't find, however, his books have any of that in-your-face political view on one side or the other. Um, again, I mean, you know, when he, what he's writing is more about a life type thing. He did write, I can't remember the name of it, but he wrote a really great book about, was it Billy something about a sniper? And, uh, and it was like his foray into a military thriller and it was really, really good. And I don't think that, um, I think even then, you know, he really places himself in an honest position of the characters. And so I think what he's putting out there is less about agenda and more about what he's seeing in his head, uh, what, what, what they would say. I, I think it's going to be interesting when I write this werewolf book, which is very different from the vampire one, because I'm talking, I'm taking it from the standpoint of I've got a hunter who's going out to, to Louisiana for like what he thinks is going to be big game but he doesn't really respect nature. He doesn't harvest his own meat and stuff like that. And so people might take shots like, wow, you're just anti-hunting. Um, and, and it's not that at all. But for this character, I really have to get into how he's just kind of, you know, wasteful taking from nature and, and stuff for his own, you know, social media pictures and stuff like that. But I'm not taking, I'm not taking pot shots at people that want to take a picture of themselves with a big buck and put it on social media. But the character is that. And so yeah. I think that sometimes you have to think about, okay, you know, do you have different views and how you're putting those into the characters you're putting? Are you being honest with them? And is it going to be polarizing to your audience who's reading it? So 
but uh but no I, king is still kicking out some pretty great stuff nice and yeah as you said that i googled it so the, the book you're talking about is billy summers yeah yeah and that that is great to see that he's not putting the politics into the books themselves because i'm not one of those people who says like oh just write your books if you want to talk about politics on twitter i mean you have every right to uh i think it's when it gets injected into your art is when people will say okay i'm no longer supporting i mean some people will if you're just putting your views on twitter but i mean the the two examples i could think of with that like in music for example is uh sebastian bach from skid row he's very left-wing and outspoken on twitter but i saw him about uh like a year and a half ago he doesn't do any of that on stage he just you know does his music talks about some memories writing it and to me that's great to see if you want to put what you want out on twitter uh, that's fine, but people go to a concert to have fun and just to reminisce on those songs, regardless of what those politics are. Um, and, you know, and, and then the other example is I just saw like uh, the band Paramore, uh, Haley Williams, she's not even on social media. Uh, so I don't, I didn't know what her politics were, but then I saw on stage that she played some festival in New Jersey and on stage said to the crowd, um, if you're supporting Ron DeSantis, you're dead to me. And it's like, is that should you really be using your outlet as a performer to do that? I mean, you've just alienated a ton of your audience. It's it's kind of that that type of stuff, uh, understandably, then pisses people off. Yeah, it is. I, I was laughing not too long ago because I've got a daughter who's um, a lot more liberal um, even than I am in some things, but she was cranking out Kid Rock. <laughs> And she just, she probably didn't know, you know, what she was, I mean, she just, you know, liked, liked it for what it was and stuff, but wasn't following some of the, like the latest, um, you know, political things that, 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 you know, he was expressing his views on that she doesn't necessarily subscribe to, but she was getting into the music. So it's, that's the thing, like you've completely alienated people who might be huge fans. It's, you know, it sucks. It's why I try not to get too political on here for of other reasons. I want everybody to listen to the show and, and, you know, yeah, we're pro second amendment for sure. You know, we have guns, you know, uh, ammo and and night vision sponsors. That's not going to change, but like, we don't go on tangents about that stuff on here. And uh, yeah, I mean, the, the biggest example I could think of, like I said, because we've had him on, Ted Nugent is an amazing guitar player. I don't think anyone could say he's not incredible at what he does. Yeah. But he's alienated half the country from ever having any interest in listening to him. That's just, And, and th- there's a reason he's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because, I mean, there was a time where he was massive. He was in that same category as Aerosmith and those types of bands. Uh, but he'll never be recognized on that scale. And once again, it's because of him expressing his politics. It's just the way it is. Yeah, I don't... I, and again, I'm not making this uh, political, but I, I don't necessarily support some of his extreme views. But when I was a kid, he used to go to a place in Tinley Park, south side of Chicago, uh, Freddie Bear Sports. It was an archery store. I used to go to it too. And uh, I had a chance to meet him. Super, super nice guy. He is, and yeah. So, so to, uh, to you know, to meet somebody like that, to enjoy the music and stuff, you're, you're right. It's 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 different. And and even to your point about other arts, I mean, there there's a lot of military thriller writers that had some extreme success, started expressing more of their political views, started losing some of that success, and I think that they even changed their tone a bit, uh, whether they were told to by the fans or by publishers, editors, what have you. But I think that I, I've also seen a bit of a moderation in some of the um, military thriller writers that have, have been, you know, finger pointed at them as being a little bit uh, uh, too outspoken on some of their, their views. 
Yeah. Yeah. And when it goes to the art, I mean, I'm sure that there are those uh, publishers who say we need to have a transgender character. We need to have a minority character. We need to have this or that. And it's become more about that than about the writing itself. Yeah. Um, anyway, man, uh, as I said, I, I'm actually like a little uh, unprepared as, as opposed to usual because I, I always have the notes in front of me. So if you want to give out your social media, the name of the book, because I know it's available for pre-order that I saw on Amazon. Yeah, no, I, I read a marketing book. So everything uh, under my name is JT Patton Books, whether it's Instagram, Twitter. I think it may be like JT Patton Author on, on Facebook. Um, I think the, the books are out on all platforms. Um, and then these that are coming out, if you do like horror, want to try them, uh, they're on Amazon. The first one is going to be this uh, Brothers of Blood, uh, which is this uh, New Orleans vampire story. If you're planning on going to New Orleans, um, it's, a, it's a real fast read, too. It'll come out on August 17th, probably a little bit sooner. But uh, a great read if you're looking to find some like classic like ghost stories, vampire stories and how it's woven into the city. Is you kind of take a tour through the book. And then the following book after that is going to be howl of the hunted which will be the werewolf book and and we'll see and then i've got the um um whispers of a gypsy out uh currently which is more of that world war ii um you know nazi hunter who finds himself um alive uh, in modern day situation so um you know dark stuff um but if you're looking for something a little bit different uh i think you could enjoy it and And if you don't enjoy it don't put it oh what were you saying say say it again i was saying if you don't enjoy it just keep it to yourself (laughs) <laughs> and I was going to say, people could still find the Haven series, right, on, uh, you know, whether it's uh, uh, Kindle or hard hard copies, right? Yeah, so the Safe Haven books um, were, were purchased by uh, Force Poseidon, and so those are being re-released. As a matter of fact, this year, I think uh, Primed Charge is going to get re-released. Um, they're called Reloaded. So the first one, Shadow Masters Reloaded, came out like a year and a half ago. Prime Charge will come and then uh, Presidential Retreat will. Uh, so those are all available. And then the other ones that were the Task Force Orange uh, ISA, a little bit more SIGINT with uh, some some tactical um, kinetics uh, connections there. Um, that was by Kensington Books. And those are all still out, you know, Amazon, Google, what have you. That's awesome. Well, I always love speaking with you. And yeah, hopefully this gives a little boost in these books and the pre-orders and that type of thing. I know this audience likes what you do, so definitely go out and support JT. And thanks for hopping on with me kind of last minute here. I, you know, yeah, like I said, you. I was in, yeah, I was in Vegas and uh, it was like, I want to actually what it was, I was originally going to do like a best of type episode, but I was just like, let me see if, you know, who's up to something and has something to promote. And to be honest, I didn't even know until I was scrolling Instagram that you did have a book on coming out soon. So I figured, all right, it's been six months. Let's uh, get you back on. So I'm, I'm glad we did this. No, I appreciate it. Glad Chris wasn't here either. Cause I don't have any Tontoism. So <laughs> gave us some airspace there. <laughs> yeah. He's in uh he's in Crete, Illinois for some, uh, for a uh, shooting, you know, uh, oh, no kidding. class. Yeah. Oh, that's he's not, either always, what were you saying? That's not too far from me. I think um, uh, Sheriff Baghdad comes down there too, every now and then teach them shooting yeah it's at uh divide defense right that's okay i think that's what that's where it is yeah so the thing about him if he's on the road it's either because he's doing a tactical instruction or he's uh doing a speaking engagement because he he never travels otherwise he just doesn't so 
That's awesome. Well, thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Always a good chat. And uh, and I think while as much as I enjoy talking to books, I hope that some folks learned a little bit of extra of, uh, of the D-Day or at least look into some of those stories. Really fascinating how that whole thing went down and almost didn't go down. So hopefully yeah. readers will look it up if they don't know or listen. Awesome. Thanks, man. Right. Absolutely. That's all for this episode of Battleline Podcast. But we're always posting new content on social media. Follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at Battleline Pod. That's an order. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes up every Tuesday. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Believe in yourself. Face all challenges head on. And as always, never quit.